It is said that when the Buddha was invited to one of his many supporters' house for alms or for a meal, that either before or after the meal he would give a discourse, speak to them about his understanding. And in the course of this talk that he would give, he would outline the, his understanding of the development of mind. And he would give it, he would do it in a very graduated way, talking about the benefits and limitations of each practice that one does or can do to begin to open and to open finally to happiness. And it's said that the sequence of topics that he would talk about was first talking about the virtue of being generous or of giving. Then after the audience or the the people had heard of the value of uh, being generous and, and having an open heart, then he would go on to talk about the power of sila, or living with uh, ethical standards. And after the audience had heard and understood the power and the benefits of living ethically, then he would enumerate the truth of the law of karma, talking about the cause and effect relationship of everything that we do. Only after that would he then go on to talk about the power of a concentrated mind. Here we, he be, would begin to talk about the development of the mind through concentration and tranquility practices. Explaining all the many benefits that can be gained from tranquility and, and concentratedness. Then he would go on and talk about the Four Noble Truths. And only after talking about the Four Noble Truths would he finally get to talking about wisdom and the liberation of mind. So they had to wait quite a while (laughs) before they got to the punchline. We all know the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. The first being the truth of dukkha, or the truth of the unsatisfactory nature of all experience. And we hear a lot about that, and we experience a lot of that truth here on retreat. The second noble truth is that the cause of this dukkha, or the cause of this unsatisfactory experience, or the Uh, unsatisfactory nature of our experience is craving because we are attached and and, uh, crave for sense desires, material uh, experiences, material goods. We're caught and uh, attached to our views and opinions and we're caught 
and attached and continually recreate a sense of ourself. And because of these cravings and attachment, we create dukkha. The third noble truth of the Buddha was that it doesn't have to be this way. That there is release from this craving. It is possible to let go of craving and in the process put aside dukkha. Imagine, if you will, for a minute, a life of no dukkha, mental or physical um, unsatisfactory experiences. What we would be left with is uh, some sort of uh, satisfactory happiness, some sort. And in fact, one of the Buddhist or Pali words for Nibbana is Santisukha, that happiness that's beyond our uh, mind and body. And the fourth noble truth of the Buddha was that uh, an uh, explanation of the path of practices that can lead to this realization of supreme sukha. Supreme happiness. Tonight I want to begin a series of talks that I'll be giving over this three months, talking about the third noble truth, talking about sukha, talking about the various ways of arousing and living with happiness in our life. I decided on doing this series of talks, this course, because in previous um, three-month retreat, I have kind of gotten the, the, whatever it's called, of being the dukkha teacher. So I thought I would change that around this year to the sukkha teacher. Some teachers don't like to talk about dukkha too much. So, tonight I want to, I want to begin this series talking about the happiness from developing a generous, open heart. Uh, from developing our mentality of, uh, for generosity. First I want to look at <coughs> happiness, our whole idea of happiness. <coughs> I think we could probably all agree that happiness is what we're all looking for, somehow. In everything that we do, in all of our activities, in our relationships, in our jobs, and I think it's probably universal. All people, all beings everywhere are searching for happiness. But we should look closely and examine which of our experiences actually bring us the happiness that we're looking for.
We spend a lot of our time longing for pleasurable experience and excitedly enjoying those experiences. Is excited enjoyment of pleasurable experience happiness? Often, we find ourselves longing for, wanting even more. And that longing is not a form of happiness. We often find ourselves being entertained by beautiful people, beautiful things. And the feeling we have of being uh, entertained, is that happiness? Often we may find ourselves feeling satiated and depleted with the overstimulation of our senses. What about achieving those long-sought and hard-fought-for goals that we have set for ourselves in life, whatever they may be, whether it's career or family or material possessions or getting to the top of the heap in whatever heap you find yourself in? Is that what we are going to be satisfied and call the happiness, the everlasting ultimate happiness of my life? Often with those achievements, any achievements, we can find ourselves with, left with the overweening pride or a sense of empty satisfaction. Is that all there is up here? And anticipation of the next challenge that we have to face. Robertson Davies, a, a Canadian author, he wrote of happiness. He said, happiness, it's a cat-like emotion. If you try to coax it, it will avoid you. But if you ignore it, it will rub up against your leg and spring unbidden into your lap. I think before a cat is going to want to jump up in your lap, we're going to have to be in some tranquil, quiet, reasonably enjoyable, pleasurable, and even a satisfied space of contentment, at ease with ourselves and at ease with others, so that that cat of happiness feels like landing in our lap. And I think that contentment and that tranquility and that being at ease with ourself implies that we know ourselves, that we are open to our whole experience, and that we feel empowered and centered. And the tranquility 
of sitting still and being content implies a confidence and an unwavering steady mind where we can and do realistically acknowledge and accept our strengths and our weaknesses, our limitations. And not only are we comfortable and trusting of ourselves, to be content with our lives as they are, we would have to recognize our interdependence with every other living being. Therefore, we have to ask, seriously, is any of our self-centered behavior going to bring us happiness? Is any of our, are any of our achievements going to bring us that contentment? I think what these questions and these reflections points to is that happiness or that sense of well-being and contentment indicates that we must act with integrity in our life, where we serve a greater purpose than our own pleasure and satisfaction, where we recognize and include the whole world or universe of beings in our vision of well-being. Because without that, any feeling of happiness or contentment is a fleeting self-indulgence, often at the expense of others. So an authentic, deep, abiding sense, a recurring sense of happiness, motivates us to act with uh, integrity in the world, rather than from a place of conceited self-preoccupation. Now in the Buddha's discourses, it is said, that he would begin by speaking about the virtues of generosity, of giving. <coughs> and he would begin by acknowledging that the power of giving and sharing what you have with others is phenomenal. The benefits that you receive and that the other receives is beyond compare. But that is just a drop in the bucket to the benefit one receives from taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, which itself is just a drop in the bucket when one lives by the five precepts, which is just a drop in the bucket for them from of the benefit one receives from a single instant of true metta, or love in their heart. Which also is 
just slightly less valuable than insight into impermanence. So just to put things in perspective, we're starting with giving. (coughs) Dana is the Pali word for generosity or uh, liberality. And it's interesting that though dana is included in the list of paramis, or the perfections that uh, bodhisattvas realize in their path of becoming a Buddha, that dana is not in the Eightfold Path. And you might reflect on why giving or generosity isn't one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. I think, and I've heard it said that it's because it's so obviously necessary as a foundation for the development of the Sila Samadhi and Panya of the Eightfold Path that it didn't even get mentioned. Because without that initial softening of our self-concern that generosity evokes, we would never even get on to practicing morality or concentration or the development of wisdom. The Buddha said, if beings knew, as I do, the resultant benefits of sharing what they have, that they wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing it with someone, even if it was their last bite of food. The power or the resultant benefits are so great that one, if, if we knew, would be willing and able to share that with another. If we look in our life and we see the people that we have immediate contact with, and then we look one step beyond that and see uh, what provides us or who provides us with our life, we see that indeed we are indebted to everyone. This web of humanity includes us all, and we can't get by without any of us. We're all interconnected, some in very obvious ways, and some in less obvious. So this uh, development of generosity, or letting go, or non-attachment, is beginning to let go of our sense of me and mine in the world. Came across this lovely uh, Chinese parable that really points to the interconnectedness of our lives. 
A very old man knew that he was going to die very soon. And before he died, he wanted to know the difference. He wanted to know what heaven and hell were like. So he visited the wise man in his village. He said, can you please tell me what heaven and hell are like? He asked the wise man. Come with me and I will show you, the wise man replied. The two men walked down a long path until they came to a large house. The wise man took the old man inside and there they found a large dining room with an enormous table covered with every kind of food imaginable. Around the table were many people, all very thin and hungry, who were holding 12-foot chopsticks. Every time they tried to feed themselves, the food fell off the chopsticks. The old man said to the wise man, Surely, this must be hell. Will you now show me heaven? The wise man said, Yes, come with me. So the two men left the house, walked further down the path until they reached another large house. Again, they found a large dining room, and in it a table filled with all kinds of food. The people here were happy and appeared well-fed, but they also held 12-foot chopsticks. How can this be? said the old man. These people have 12-foot chopsticks, and yet they are happy and well-fed. The wise man replied, In heaven, the people feed each other. This is the nature of uh, the sharing, giving, open heart, where we recognize and acknowledge our interdependence. We have to look. What is it in our life that prevents us from being open-handed with our time, with our possessions, with our praise for others, with our space, what is it that prevents it? Stinginess, miserliness, attachment, pride, conceit. And it's necessary to look at these qualities in our life, these qualities in our mind, and to acknowledge them when we find them in our practice here. You know, claiming your space in the lunch line, your space in the dining room, my time at the wherever it is. Because to recognize these qualities in our mind and to put a name on them, begins to take power from them. The ancient exorcist used to say, when you can name your demon, you take its power. When you can name those mental states, those states of mind, that take away your power, you begin to take their power. We should consider what motivates us. What would be our motivation in giving, in being generous, in being open-handed? Sometimes we may feel obligated. We may feel it's expected of us. We may give out of fear. 
we may give for all sorts of reasons, but not really from a spirit of being generous. We may give in return for a favor, or we may give someone something hoping to get a favor in return. Any of these motivations are less than optimal, even though the benefit of what is received is the same. However, when we recognize our connection with others, and out of love and care for them and compassion, wishing for their happiness, when we then give them something so that they may be taken care of, may be well-fed or whatever, then our motivation really reaches the ideal of the bodhisattva where we really care for all beings so that they may be free from their worldly suffering. And in that motivation, in that care and concern, there really cannot be aversion, disappointment, expectation, pride, those things drop away when that love and genuine care is present. So we can see that the motivation with which we give is a powerful determinant of the benefit and the happiness that we will receive. This intention or this motivation is in fact what's called karma. The motivation or the intention behind our actions. And the strength of that intention strengthens and fortifies and augments the strength of the joy we receive, the happiness received, the tranquility, the contentment, and all the other mental factors that arise then If there is a hidden motive, if there is a sense of attachment to the thing that we give, to the person that we give to, if there's fear, if there's desire for something in return, then our motivation is less than pure. And we'll know it. Therefore, Developing a heart of generosity requires our integrity and our personal involvement. I recently heard of one young fellow here who, because he has a rare blood type, has been asked to give blood regularly. And he does so, offers it uh, for the people that need that particular blood type. Recently was asked if he would donate bone marrow for someone that he doesn't even know without anything in return and agreed to. That, that's noble motivation. Just so that someone 
can receive a bone marrow transplant to live a little longer. Ten years ago, 1983, I was just about to do my first and only three-month retreat here. And uh, that summer I was living in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts. <clears throat> and I read a newspaper article about a potter that lived nearby where I did, who had studied in Japan, and now at his little uh, shop in western Massachusetts, had built an authentic Japanese tea house. And during the summer months, had uh, a Japanese tea ceremonial list invited from Japan to offer a tea ceremony three or four times a day, and anyone could go if they wanted to make an appointment. So, being a novel thing to do, I signed up, called up, made an appointment, and went. And I went to this uh, pottery shop, this, this studio, and uh, when I got there, it was a beautiful place. It was just uh, lovely uh, flower gardens and uh, uh, beautiful uh, uh, Japanese uh, buildings, and uh, just, just a lovely place, like Deva Land. And uh, there was this little tea house, authentic tea house <coughs> with all Japanese materials, etc., a little stream running through. And uh, so I went in and, and I was the, this tea ceremony was performed, very ritualized and uh, very elegant, very simple and elegant uh, ceremony. And after the ceremony, I wandered around the uh, grounds and, and just was filled with uh, a lot of appreciation for what this man was doing there. And uh, I looked at his pottery that he made in, uh, in this studio, it was beautiful, so very simple and uh, uh, unadorned, really. And uh, then I wandered into his uh, studio, uh, his studio where he does the work, and it was a mess, but it was also very interesting. He wasn't there at the time, but I so appreciated how I felt being there and just the the amount of effort that he put into that place. That at that time I was still baking bread. And uh, each week I would bake bread. So I, next time I baked bread, I made a loaf and I took it over to the, to to him. And uh, the clerk that was there gave it to him later. And uh, I never heard from him. Well, just before I came to the three-month course, I decided that, gee, I'd like to have one of those plates from his pottery shop to eat off of when I came here to do the retreat. So, I went over to the uh, studio again, and this time he was there. So I explained to him uh, who I was, and he said, oh, you're the fellow that brought the bread. Thank you very much. And uh, I told him I was going to go on retreat, and I was going to sit for three months. And he said, oh, I sit a lot at my potter's wheel. I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told him that I wanted a, uh, a plate to eat, one of his plates to eat off of, while I was doing that retreat. And he said, oh, that's a lovely idea. He says, uh, you can go in my uh, uh, studio. You can pick any plate you want. You can have it. 
in his pottery. It wasn't cheap. So I said, gee, that's pretty generous. I was really quite elated. So I went in and I looked around and I picked something that was pretty modest, something that I really liked, and um, brought it to the three-month course, used it, grew very fond of it, very attached to it. (laughs) (coughs) I really appreciated it, and I thought a lot about this this, uh, potter and how generous he was to do that. A year later, I packed it all up, put it upstairs in the attic, and I went off to Burma. While I was in Burma, I reflected again quite frequently on the, the generosity of this man and, and how much I appreciated this plate. And um, <laughs> while I was there, when I came back, um, one of my teachers here, whom I really love and admire and uh, really appreciate, uh, I wanted to offer something to him. And uh, I offered him this plate. It meant so much to me that I offered it to uh, her. And uh, I could see that she really liked it too. And uh, it's quite beautiful. That was a few years ago, three or four years ago. Recently, I was invited to uh, dinner with another long-term meditator, very generous, generous and uh, diligent yogi. And uh, in this yogi's house, uh, quite empty, probably like the mind, and very simple uh, furniture. And in the living room, there wasn't a thing except a small couch, a small chair, bare walls, bare floor, and a big plant. And one little table about the size of this, in between the chair and the couch. And on that table was that plate. (laughs) And I recognized it. And I said, boy, I'm really happy that you have that plate. It meant so much to me to give it to my teacher. And then to see that she so valued it and appreciated it, that she gave it to someone else. Now that sounds funny, but I believe it's because she appreciated it so much that she gave it. And I believe it's because that person who received it appreciated it so much that that's the only thing she has in her living room. And it really touched me a lot to see that True happiness comes from giving it up. And I haven't given up anything. I've gotten more pleasure out of that plate than if I kept it. (laughs) More happiness. More of a sense of completion, fulfillment, and a real connectedness with others. So you see how generosity and giving creates happiness? You think about it before you do it. You think about it as you're doing it. You think about it after you've done it. And every time, it brings a sense of upliftment, connection with others, love, appreciation, happiness. And every time I think of it, it's the same thing.
But you know, sometimes I think it, it would be quite expected that if I went in somebody's house and I saw that something I gave to someone was, had been given away, I'd say, geez, they didn't like that very much. You know, and then I would feel kind of ashamed, maybe. But that's not the way it is with true generosity. Because when you give up something, you give up your attachment to it. And it's not like you still have strings on it, and if they don't use it right, they've got to give it back. No. They can do with it as they like. If you've really given it up. If you're really free from that identification with it. And so everyone gets the benefit. We can all share everything we have. We all get the benefit. When we give from a place of feeling like we have enough, there always will be enough. I'm reminded of the extremely poor people in Burma who, I mean, uh, by our standards, just live really way, way, way below the poverty line. And yet it's said that the Burmese, the average Burman, still gives something like a quarter to a third of their really meager income to support meditation centers, pagodas, monks, nuns, teachers of one sort or another. And there's something about the spirit of those people in that country that is really happy. Those people have a sense of contentment, fulfillment, connectedness, and something that I don't see here so much, frankly. It is said that when, when we give, <clears throat> that we will be loved by whomever we give to. Also that in our giving, in the development of our heart of generosity, that we'll draw to us people of noble intention. and that we gain a good reputation, and that we can feel confident in ourselves and within any group of people. Because we have that solid place of connection, of love, of sharing, and that sense of, I've got enough and I can share it with you. I don't have to compete or take or connive in any way. And that just creates the, the space to welcome inclusively everyone. I think sometimes in, the, in this culture, to have to live or to even choose to live on the alms or the generosity or the uh, gratuities of others is really stigmatized. And most people that have to live on uh, handouts, you know, are like uh, welfare people. And so the, 
the image we have of living like that is really uh, quite distorted. And often there's a, a, a tremendous sense of shame and embarrassment and a sense of uh, really worthlessness and, and really s low self-esteem among people like that. I found that being a teacher in this, in this tradition, also living on uh, the generosity of students, initially would evoke those same feelings. Something like shame or embarrassment or uh, you know, just like, well, maybe not worthy or something like that. It's a conditioning in our culture. I've gotten over that. All right. <laughs> but I think because our society is so materially oriented that often our sense of ourself is affirmed or denied by how much we have and what it's worth. And the practice we're doing here is confronting that totally. I want to tell another story. <coughs> After I'd been in Burma for some years, and I was about to leave, I was invited by a couple of Burmese women to meet their teacher, another monk. And I was told that this monk was, um, had been a well-known teacher in a well-known meditation center in Rangoon, but that he'd left uh, some 30 years before that and had gone to what was then the edge of the jungle on the outskirts of Rangoon. And that he'd gone to a cave there, and he just lived his simple uh, life in and around this cave. The longer he lived there, the more people heard about him, went to him for teachings, and liking his teachings, would uh, then move to the area to be near him. In the course of which, over 30 years, Rangoon had grown in his direction. And now, his isolated cave on the edge of the jungle was in the middle of a big uh, housing development. <laughs> anyway, I was invited to, to meet this teacher, so I went with these two Burmese women. And uh, to make a long story short, we walked into this uh, a uh, little, little grove of trees, a little two-acre maybe forest in the middle of all this bus hustle and bustle of life in the world. And uh, just walking into this place, it was just absolutely still. Very simple. A couple of wooden cooties, a wooden meditation hall, and a, and a wooden uh, dormitory for elderly women who, you know, when they, when they get old and have no more families, no, they often go to the monasteries to live. And um, very quiet, very peaceful. And so I met this, uh, they took me and I met this elderly monk, and he was really alert and very tranquil. And uh, I was so taken by him and the simplicity of his life that uh, he asked me, oh, how are you doing? 
and I talked to the translator and, and then he said, well, do you have any questions? And I just told him that I'd been in Burma for three or four years and uh, had done these certain practices and was thinking about returning or leaving Burma, maybe coming back to the States and what should I do? And uh, if he had any advice. And he said, well, he said, uh, you know, you really should practice. I've been practicing for four years. <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, he said, uh, you really should have your own understanding of Dhamma before you teach. So I said, well, I've got a couple of weeks before I leave Burma. Do you mind if I practice here? And he said, no. So I had to go through the government and get my permit to stay in his monastery. And um, when I went there, the next day, after getting my permit, he had set aside his cabin for me to practice in. And he said, now I want you to have every opportunity to develop your wisdom, your understanding, and your concentration. So he said, you use my cabin. And there's a walking room out back, you know, 60 feet long, four foot wide. You do your walk in there, you do your meditation there. And I said, well, what time is alms round? Because we go on alms, monks go on alms round to get their food in the morning, about five or six o'clock. And he said, no, he says, you, you don't have to go on alms round. He said, it'd be better for you to stay in practice. And the other monks, there was about a dozen monks there, he said, we'll go on alms round and the food we get, we'll share with you. So I said, gee, that's really generous. Thank you. And uh, this was all through a translator. Then the translator left, and I was there for two weeks without a translator. <laughs> That's okay, you know, no reason to talk. And it happened two or three times. I'd be doing my walking, doing my sitting, and I'd get to a, you know, that point of frustration and uh, looking for a distraction. And I'd open my door, I'd step out to go for a walk, and he'd be standing there looking. <laughs> Just like he expected me to be coming out the door right then. And he would just smile. I'd go back inside. <laughs> anyway, on the last day that I was there, um, the, the day before the last, he said, uh, tomorrow, your last day, he says, uh, you, you, should, you should go on arms around with us. I said, okay. That sounded good. So I got up and I got ready for arms around five o'clock or whatever. And all night, the previous night, they had one of these village festivals, as they have in Burma and Thailand, where they set up these big loudspeakers, and they sing and chant and give Dhamma talks all night, loud. <laughs> and they do this often. And so I didn't get much sleep. And, uh, but by the morning, it was still and quiet, and there was no more loudspeakers. And so the dozen or fifteen monks lined up. He was at the front. I was about fourth or fifth in line. And uh, we started out the monastery. So we walked through the monastery, got to the edge. And uh, he stepped aside, and he waved the other monks on. And when I came to him, he said, you stand here with me. And he waved the other monks on. And I thought, well, what's going on here? They all took off on arms round, and we didn't go. And then I looked up the path where they were going, and I could see, God, there was all kinds of people, dozens, hundreds of people lined up out there, waiting to give these twelve monks food. And he just turned around, he walked back into the monastery. And we went out the back way, went out through a back path. We were walking through lanes, dusty lanes and alleyways in the back of his monastery, and after ten or fifteen minutes we came to 
it was, you know, there were houses and hedges and things, but we came to an uh, intersection where there was a, a small market. And we were walking along quite quietly. Hadn't, there wasn't anybody giving us alms at this point. And then, oh, maybe a hundred yards ahead of us, some little boy or someone saw us coming. Ah, so he says, ah, Ponji Labi, Ponji Labi, which means monks are coming, monks are coming. And instantly, everybody in the shops, in the cafes, everything, ah, they started getting something to offer to us. And as we came walking up to this sidewalk cafe, you know, just in the dusty street, ah, everybody, they had the shopkeepers, the, client, the, the shoppers, the people that lived around there, they all lined up to offer us something to eat. And they offered you know, fruits and cakes and rice and curries and you know, the, whole, the whole stuff. And we didn't move for five minutes or more. People would just come, and the bowl is only a little bit bigger than this. And it would get full, and then somebody would come along with a plastic bag, take it all out, put it in a plastic bag, and it would get full again. Take all that out, put it in a plastic bag, and it would get full again. And pretty soon we had a whole string of little boys, little uh, you know, five and six-year-olds, holding a big plastic bag in each hand, following along behind us. And we went on about a, maybe a two-hour walk through different villages and, and sections of that town. And everywhere we went, same thing, hundreds of people offering food to this monk. And I thought, wow, this guy is really pretty popular. <laughs> And I felt, as I was following him and seeing the, the expressions on people's faces, I just felt like I was following the Buddha, you know, to put it mildly. I just felt like, you know, 2,500 years ago. And I could just see how respected this teacher was and how genuinely happy these people were to be in relationship with him, to be able to offer him his support so that he in turn could live in their midst and offer them the Dhamma. And those people had all moved to that area because he lived there and they wanted to be around him. And this is a tradition that's been going on for 2,500 years. And he's not asking for anything. He went there to live, to get away from the crowds, to be on his own, to do his own practice. There's a powerful lesson in there for us, all of us. The Buddha said, when you are deciding to whom to give your offerings to, Choose those or whom you offer whom you offer to is like a field. And if you choose a fertile field, you'll get a lot of results. You'll get a lot of fruit, a lot of benefits. And if you choose a fallow field, you won't get much results. You won't get much benefit. And so to choose wisely, to use some discriminating wisdom in how you spread your charities. is going. I just want to mention one other thing about 
generosity and uh, developing the spirit of connectedness through sharing and, and uh, having a sense of having enough. We teachers who sit here, or we who sit up this high, really consider it a real honor, a real privilege to be able to give and to offer you these teachings. And the Buddha said that the gift of the Dharma excels all other gifts. And I really want to thank you and and express my appreciation that you will receive it and hear it. And know also that when you leave here, you don't leave your practice here. You don't leave the Dharma here. You take it into the world and you give it to the world. And that's the greatest gift that you can give anyone. And it's the greatest gift that you can give yourself. Is to be here seeing for yourself the truth. However, let's understand that the benefits and the happiness that we get, that others get from giving, from sharing, from being cared for in that way, is not enough. That it takes living by ethical conduct. It also takes developing concentration by developing metta or other Brahma Viharas, and it also takes the development of insight to free the mind from even stickier graspings and clingings and holding on than just to our material goods. And in the future talks I want to speak about the happiness that comes from the development of these other practices, of these other trainings in development of mind. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.